Let's ask God's blessing upon the reading and hearing of his word today. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training us up in righteousness. We pray that by the blessing of your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the resurrected and ascended Jesus, your word would be found most useful, most profitable in all of our lives today. Bless and strengthen, for in our need we ask these things of you, O God. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd ask that you turn in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 46. Perhaps that's not a surprise. In light of singing together a few moments ago, that great hymn by the reformer Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a hymn that was largely inspired by this 46th Psalm. Psalm 46, please give your attention to the word of God to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamath, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth, he breaks the bow, and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. The grass withers, the flowers of the field fade and fall. But this, the word of our God in Psalm 46, endures forever. Just a few evenings ago, in Rochester, we had a number of very serious thunderstorms blow through in the middle of the night. One moment, everything was calm and quiet and peaceable. 
And the next moment, there were those rumblings of thunder, and then the streaks of lightning that just seemed to illumine the entirety of the sky. And then things got closer and closer, and one of those lightning blasts seemed to be so close that the air practically felt like it was alive, pulsing with the power of that bolt of lightning. Children, I wonder if you've ever been in the middle of a thunderstorm like that. And I wonder if when that thunderstorm has awakened you in the middle of the night, you have done what I'm always tempted to do, which is to reach down to the end of your bed in that moment when there's rumbling and when the sky is streaking with lightning and you're tempted to be afraid, and you reach down to the end of your bed and you pull up your covers, maybe even all the way over your head, and you are so thankful for the comforting weight of that blanket that is over you that helps you to fight the fear. Well, there is a sense this morning that as we hear God's word from Psalm 46, that we with so many countless generations of our brothers and sisters who have gone before us, take the comforting weight of Psalm 46 and wrap it around ourselves so that we would have the comfort of a sovereign God to assist us in those moments when we would be tempted and inclined towards fear. I have listened to sermons on Psalm 46 that have been delivered at moments after terrorist attacks. I have listened to sermons from Psalm 46 that have been delivered after noteworthy natural catastrophes. I have listened to sermons on Psalm 46 that are delivered at the beginning, the first Lord's Day of a new year for God's people to hold on to in light of the uncertainty that the new year would hold. And of course, Martin Luther is reputed many times to have said to his young protege, Philip Melanchthon, in the difficult moments when God was using him to begin the Reformation, come now, Philip, let's sing the 46th and let the devil do his worst. This is a treasure that the Lord has given to us. This great psalm to give us comfort and strength that enables us to face our every fear. Now you notice the structure of this psalm this morning. It actually comes in three stanzas the second two of which are followed by a refrain, the refrain found there in verse seven and again in verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. And it strikes me as rather interesting in its format in the sense that some more contemporary hymns that I enjoy very much, uh, some authored, for example, by Keith and Christian Getty or by Matt Merker, often follow a similar format. There, there is a, a verse and then another verse and finally the refrain and then a verse and a closing refrain. And it's an interesting format. We might ask ourselves, why isn't the refrain, the chorus, found after the first stanza? We'll think about that more in just a few moments. But what I want you to see is that in many ways this, the comforts of this psalm are really summarized in this refrain, in this chorus, in verses seven and 11. So let's actually begin there 
before returning to the beginning of this psalm. So where is the great comfort to be found in this psalm? The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Notice here in this refrain, two great titles of God are on display. The first title, the Lord of hosts. The second title, the God of Jacob. And in each case, there is a tangible benefit to God's faith-filled people that is attached to the particular title that is highlighted regarding our God. Let's think first of all about this title, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. It's characteristic of how God has revealed himself in the Old Testament that many times his covenant name, Yahweh, will be attached to some additional designation helping us to understand who he is as our covenant God. Yahweh Yaira, the Lord, our provider. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord, my banner. Yahweh Rapha, the Lord who heals. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. The idea here that God would be the Lord of hosts means that he is the Lord over a host of an army. That's the reference that's being made. God is the leader, the general, the commander over a mighty army. But there are a number of ways that this terminology of host can be used in the Old Testament. Sometimes it refers to the hosts of the stars in the heavens, the, the physical heavens above us. Sometimes the hosts are the children of Israel who go forward arrayed as an army. Here in this instance, almost certainly, the hosts that are being referred to are the angelic beings whom God has created and elected to be his servants to do his bidding. Our God is a God of sovereign power. He does not need even uh, the slightest bit of assistance in administering the world that he has made. Nonetheless, in his goodness and wisdom, he has created and elected unto his service the hosts of heaven, the angelic beings who are used of him in his reign within his world. Now these angelic beings are mighty in power. We think of that instance during the time of King Hezekiah when the Assyrians, the Assyrians were surrounding Jerusalem and the king of Assyria through his representatives was taunting those who dwelled in Jerusalem telling them that their God would not be able to save them. And God heard the prayers of Hezekiah and the people. And that very night, a single angel of the Lord went forth and struck down 185,000 of the soldiers in the Assyrian army. If that is the power of one angel, how much power is on display here to think of God being at the head of hosts of angels. And there are many places in the scriptures where we find that there's great comfort in being reminded that God has these angelic helpers to assist those who are heirs of salvation. Think of that time when Elisha 
the prophet is with his helper and they are surrounded by enemy soldiers. And Elisha's helper is frantic with worry. Master, what are we going to do? And Elisha prays to the Lord and says, Lord, open the eyes of this man so that he might know that those who are with us are many more than those who are against us. And indeed, the helper's eyes were opened and he saw the hills filled with chariots of fire. Or another instance when David was called to go out and battle against the Philistines and the Lord said, David, you will not have to commit yourself to battle this day, but you go and you array yourself opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching above the trees, then you will know that the Lord goes out to fight your battle for you. Oh, these instances in scripture where the Lord of hosts demonstrate that he would, demonstrates that he would use this mighty power in behalf of those who look to him. Now we think of that instance in the time of Joshua when Joshua is with the children of Israel and they are outside the walls of Jericho and wondering how is it that we're going to be able to, to, to conquer this walled city as we make our way into the land of promise. And you remember that Joshua meets up with this mighty figure and, and he sees this mighty figure and he says, are you for us or for our adversaries? And this figure says, no, I am the commander of the Lord's hosts and I am here now. And commentators point us to that person being a pre-incarnate encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, who indeed stands as the commander, the general, over all the hosts that God has arrayed for the sake of the salvation of his people. We think of that instance then in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus, the commander of the hosts of heaven, is there, and he is surrounded by a ragtag army of those who have come against him. His enemies have been led to him by his, his own disciple, Judas, who betrays him with a kiss. And Jesus is surrounded by this army, and they come to him with club and sword and torch. And Jesus says to them, don't you understand if I called out to my father, he would send more than 12 legions of angels to my aid. But Jesus relinquishes that help. Oh, we can think of those angels standing at the ready, ready to come at Jesus' bidding. He is their commander, their general. And yet he refuses to call upon their aid because he gives his life a ransom for many. God is the Lord of hosts, and he is with us indeed because we know through Jesus, who gave himself for our sin, we have bold and confident access to a God, even of infinite power. And you see the benefit that is here for us, don't you? He says the Lord of hosts is with us, the language here is imanu, with us. It is a preposition attached to a pronoun. And you hear, don't you, 
most of that wonderful title given to our Savior, Jesus, Emmanuel. Because here we're being told that the Lord of hosts is Emmanuel. He is with us. Though he is transcendent, he is also near. Though he is over all things, he also dwells with the humble and contrite of heart. And we need not face this life alone, but we go forward strong, faith-filled, because of the mighty presence of our God who is with us always. Think of the wonderful promises that Jesus makes. He tells his own disciples that wherever two or three are gathered, I am in the midst of them. And as he commissions the church just prior to his ascension, he tells the church, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You are never alone. You, the church of Jesus Christ, are never alone. God does not forsake you. He does not abandon you. He does not leave you merely to your own resources. He is ever with you. The Lord of hosts is with you. I think of that instance in 2 Timothy, where in his closing chapter, the fourth chapter, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, at my first defense, No one came to stand with me. But he goes on to say, but the Lord stood with me and he gave me strength. Even when Paul was destitute of all worldly comforts, he understood that his Savior stood with him always and gave him the strength that he required even to make the good confession even to fight the good fight, to finish the course, to run the race. The Lord of hosts is with us, a God of mighty power whose presence always abides. But we find here as well that the God of Jacob is our fortress, this other great title found in this chorus, the God of Jacob. We think of Jacob, the last of the patriarchs, Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and then Isaac's son Jacob. Now, interestingly enough, Jacob also had encounters with God's angelic hosts, didn't he? He had an encounter with the angels that were going up and down on the ladder, as it were, between heaven and earth there at Bethel, the house of God. But you may know that after Jacob leaves with his children and family, his father-in-law Laban's household, he makes his way back towards Esau, his estranged brother. And of all the difficulties that Jacob had faced, this perhaps was the most fearful one of all because Jacob and Esau had not left on good terms, Jacob having taken the birthright and the blessing from his slightly older twin brother. And yet at that moment of worry and anxiousness, God shows to Jacob a vision of the angels. And so uh, Jacob names that place Menanaim, which means two camps. Presumably speaking about his camp, this camp filled with women and crying children and shepherds and animals, but the second camp being the mighty camp of the angels that God was sending 
to be helpers to him in this time of need. So there is a link here in terms of the Lord of hosts and the God of Jacob. But perhaps the thing that sticks out most of all about, about Jacob is though he was the last of the patriarchs in some ways, if you've looked at his life, he is also the least of the patriarchs. So many ups and downs. The roller coaster of faith that Jacob seems to be riding on. And yet just the same throughout his life, God is so steadfast and faithful and he reaffirms to Jacob the wonderful covenant that he had graciously promised, first of all to Abraham, then to Isaac, and then lastly to Jacob. That God would have a people to be his very own, that he would give to those people a place in which they would dwell, and that ultimately those people would be preeminent among all others in the earth. And so here is a God who is faithful and steadfast, even though Jacob is up and down. His faith ebbs and flows. And so here we have a reminder that God is steady and constant and, and unflinching and unwavering and relentless in his love towards us. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That it is the loyalty of God to us and not our loyalty to him that firm serves as the bedrock, the foundation for our hope today and always. And if the promise that the Lord of hosts is with us, God is with us, here the promise is that God is for us, he is our fortress. We can flee to him. We can run to him. Like the Proverbs say, that the name of the Lord is a mighty tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. He is for us through his son, Jesus. And as Paul says, and there is no one who has been able to answer this question yet, if God is for us, who could be against us? This is the promise then of this refrain. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Well, returning then to the opening stanza, the first three verses of this psalm, we understand then how it is that this God who is with us, this God who is for us, how this gives us the strength that we need in light of the troubles that we face. Again, verse one, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. God is our refuge, he is outside of us, we run into him. God is our strength, he supplies us with the fortitude that we need in our souls to persevere in holding on to him throughout the course of our lives. The call for us is to avail ourselves of the Lord to make sure that that which he offers to us freely in Jesus, we are taking hold of. We are taking hold of him who is our refuge and our strength. We think of how fearful it would be to live in one of the great cities of Ukraine these last 18 months and to hear the sirens going off, the air raid sirens indicating an incoming missile attack by the Russian army or air force. What do you need to do when the air raid siren is blaring? You need to run for the bomb shelter. You need to find the place of safety. You need to find the place of refuge. Here we're being told we must seek the Lord 
and find our refuge in him, you hear the warning sirens of life. Take hold of the Lord. Know him to be your refuge and your strength. Notice that the psalmist says he's a very present help in trouble. Different translations of this interesting phrase that says something along the lines that in trouble, a helper to be found greatly is the Lord. Speaking of the reality that he's right there and also seemingly the reality that the more that we test him, the harder we lean into him, the stronger we will ever find him to be. Test the Lord time upon time. It will only serve to confirm for you that he will never fail. He will not grow tired. He will not relinquish his loving hold upon you. And notice the psalmist tells us here that this will be true in times of trouble. You understand that, don't you? Even as a follower of Jesus, there will be times of trouble. The Bible everywhere promises us that it is through many tribulations that we will enter the kingdom of heaven. And yet it continues to astound me about my own soul and perhaps your soul as well, that there are those moments that we assume that all the wonderful blessings of the new heaven and the new earth should be ours right now. We want the streets paved with gold rather than the potholes of daily living in this fallen and broken world. There will be troubles. But in those troubles, the psalmist promises us that this God who is with us and this God who is for us will indeed be the refuge that we need. He tells us then in verse two, therefore we will not fear. And presumably here, this is the church admonishing itself. Notice this corporate language. Therefore we will not fear. And there's a contrast here with the psalms that have been given to us just a few chapters earlier, Psalms 42 and 43, that probably are to be taken together as a single psalm ultimately, where you remember how the psalmist is talking to himself and he speaks of how troubled his soul is and how heavily weighed down and he calls upon himself to put his hope in the Lord all over again. He talks to himself in his moment of despair. So now the church as a whole is talking to itself and calling upon itself, exhorting its membership to not fear, to set aside all cause of worry and doubt and anxiety in light of who God is for us all the time and in every circumstance. I think of how it is that the writer of Hebrews calls upon the church to to encourage itself Right, whenever anyone has drooping hands and weak knees, we are there to spur one another on to love and good deeds. You have an amazing role in one another's lives. The Lord uses you to call upon one another to set aside fear, anxiety, and doubt by pointing one another to the fact that your God is with you and your God is for you. Notice here that this is so even to the extent as described in verse two where it says, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. 
this concessive clause tells us that the setting aside of fear is, is not only through the incidentals of daily living, though of course God is with us in the little bumps and the little bruises that we receive on a daily basis. But he's saying here it's even to the extent at those moments when the world itself, rather than being terra firma, firm beneath our feet, seems like it is making every effort to cast us off and to bring about our own destruction. Those moments when there are wildfires. Those moments when a hurricane is taking aim at the American Southwest at those moments of earthquake and tumult in the natural realm, even in those instances, the psalmist is saying, even then, even when the whole world seems to be collapsing, even then we are able to set aside fear in light of the fact that God is a refuge and strength and ever-present source of help. And we think about mountains. I think about them falling into the heart of the sea. You think about the earth being moved, the earth representing stability, the mountains representing a place of security. David will also often run and hide himself in the fortress of the mountains. And we know that in our own lives, those things that we assume will be stable and those things that we assume will give us security so often betray us. We think that our health, our strength, our family, our friendships, our work, our skills, our gifts, our place within the church, that those things will always be there for us and they will always give us identity and strength and security. And yet we hit a moment in our lives when even those things are nowhere to be found. But just the same, God says here to us, that in light of his great power and his steadfast love, we need not fear. And then we remember why it is that this world at times seems like it becomes our very enemy. And we are taken back to the garden when after Adam and Eve's fall into sin, God pronounced a curse upon Adam. And he told them that it was through the sweat of his brow that he would earn his grain. And there would be those thorns and thistles that he would need to contend with as he performed his labor. And we're mindful that the reason that the world so often seems adversarial towards us is because of the reality of sin. This is why Paul speaks of this world as, as groaning at the present time, awaiting the redemption of the sons of God. And so we think here of how it is that we can trust in the Lord in spite of sin and sin's consequence of judgment. It is only in and through Jesus that God would be a refuge to us rather than an enemy against us because Jesus is the one who takes away sin and sin's curse. Because of Jesus, we meet our judge and our maker unafraid. But then we turn to the second stanza here in verses four through six. And I mentioned earlier on that it's interesting that the, the refrain, the chorus, is not included between these two stanzas. And we might ask ourselves, why is that? And on one hand, it seems to, to up kind of the suspense before the great 
clarion call of the chorus is delivered to us, but it also serves to make sure that the contrast between the chaotic waters in verse three and the serene waters of verse four is very, very clear. In verse three, that opening stanza, the waters here are roaring and foaming. And we think of those many instances in scripture where the waters are a place of chaos, where the waters are a place of danger, where the waters are a place even from which enemies arise. Uh, last summer, my family and I uh, vacationed on the shore in South Carolina, right? good ARP territory right there, South Carolina. And uh, we were enjoying the water there one day, the surf, and uh, suddenly my, my daughter, 24-year-old daughter, began to call out to her siblings and to my wife and me and, and tell us, get to shore, get to shore. And we're like, what's going on? We weren't sure what, what it was that was going on. And so we just took her warning at face value and we made our way very quickly uh, back to the beach. And it turns out that my daughter had spotted a black-tipped shark that was circling us. And what really freaked her out, as she said, was that moment when it was actually between us and the shoreline. It was actually between us and where we would need to go if we were trying to escape from it. Hadn't even seen it because the waters, of course, were murky until that fin cut through the surface. So it is in scripture that so often the waters are chaotic and, and filled with danger. Isn't it interesting that in the new heavens and the new earth as described in Revelation 21, we're told there is no more sea. And, and that's not so much a hydrological comment as it is a theological comment. It's a way of saying no more danger, no more enemies, they are gone once and for all. You know the beast rising out of the ocean depicted earlier on in Revelation, he's no more. No more enemies, no more danger lurking beneath the surface. But here the contrast is between these dangerous chaotic waters and the serene waters of this river whose streams make glad the city of God. Of course, if a, if a fortress, if a city is having to stand against a siege, it needs to have water. It needs to have a source of fresh water. And perhaps you remember how King Hezekiah, in preparation for the Assyrian army, actually built a water course to take the little uh, tide from Siloam into uh, the city of Jerusalem so that there would be fresh water. And here is a picture of the city of God having what it needs, having this serene source of strength constantly flowing through it. And the picture here of this river dividing up into these different streams almost makes it seem as though every resident within the city has his or her own tributary that comes personally and gloriously into each one's individual experience providing all that is needed even in moments of difficulty. And so it is here that we're mindful that God is promising his very own presence. There's many moments in scripture where the dwelling place of God is associated with a mighty flowing river. Don't you know that in the garden there were the four rivers that watered the garden and bounded it? 
Ezekiel has in his great vision, in his prophecy, this moment in mind when there would be a throne of God established and a mighty river would flow forth from it to the nourishment of his people. And in Revelation, once again, we find this glorious picture of salvation consummated. And in that new Jerusalem, a river flowing from the throne with the tree of life on either side of it the leaves for the nourishment of the nations. God richly pouring out all that is needed for life, both now and evermore. And Jesus tells us during his earthly ministry that he has come to fulfill this great promise. You might remember how in John 7 he says, while in the court of the temple, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, now this he said about the spirit who's, uh, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Here we are gathered today. God is with us and God is for us. And there is a life-giving stream even through the promised Holy Spirit that is pouring into all of our lives today by the spirit. We are empowered to bear witness to Christ by the spirit. His love has been lavished and poured out in our hearts. And by his spirit, we are gifted to serve him and to use our resources for his glory. Here the psalmist speaks of how it is that the nations are raging, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. The nations are contending against God, God is contending against them. Here we are almost as it were caught in the crossfire. But just the same, God is giving us what we need to serve him and to find our sufficiency in Jesus Christ in every moment of our lives. This is true for our brothers and sisters in places like Nigeria, who are under increasing pressure on the part of radical Islam and the violence that is rendered against them. This is true of us here in North America as we are called bigots for holding on to the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ as being the only way, truth, and life. And as we set forth before our culture the reality of sin in all of its forms, which necessitates the gospel in the first instance, whatever it is that we face, here we find that God, through his power, is with us. And then finally, we turn then to the closing stanza, verses eight through 10. It stands and begins, come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And, and this reminder that God brings the cessation of warfare might at first glance be a little misleading. We might almost assume that what is being depicted here is an armistice. That, that there's been a truce, that, um, that God is laying down the weapons of his warfare, the nations are no longer raging against him, and so peace in that sense is prevailing. That's not what is on display here. When the bows are being broken, when the spears are being shattered, when the chariots are being burnt, this is victory through triumph. It is peace through conquest. There are a number of instances in the Old Testament, including in Ezekiel, when he once again looks forward into the future and has a vision of a day 
when all of the adversaries of God's people would be overcome and the shafts of their spears would themselves be sufficient to fuel the fires of the people for seven years. They wouldn't need to go out and gather firewood because they would take the spears, the weaponry of their enemies and use those things to fuel the flames of their fires. That's what's on display here, God overcoming his enemies. But what's so interesting is that now we find in the first verse of this stanza, come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth, not an invitation to the church, excuse me, an invitation to the church, but rather an invitation from the church. I think this is in fact the invitation that we are delivering to the world around us, in which we call upon those who are lost and perishing in their sin, those who are adversaries of the infinite and holy God, and we call upon them to behold the works of the Lord, reminding them that in the end, God will certainly prevail. The bows will be broken, the spears will be shattered, the chariots will be burned with fire. And so now, while there's opportunity, we are calling upon them to come and to behold these works so that in faith and repentance, rather than fighting against God, they might have peace with God through Jesus Christ. This might not sound much like Christ's invitation in Matthew 11, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. But that invitation is delivered to those who have been broken down by the world. This invitation is given to those who are arrogant and proud in the world, calling upon them to understand their precarious place before the inevitable conquest of Almighty God. So then I believe in verse 10, God is not talking directly to the church in that sense, though I've oftentimes found great comfort in God saying to me, be still and know that I am God. Rather, it seems this is God's message to the nations, be still, know that I am God, quiet, cease your striving, lay down your warfare, cease your enmity against me. I will be exalted among you, I'll be exalted in all the earth. God calling upon them while there's opportunity to be reconciled to him through the work of Jesus. Much like what we find in Psalm two, one of the gateway psalms into the entirety of the Psalter where the Messiah is set before us as the one through whom God's blessings would be given to the church. And the enemies of Messiah, the enemies of Christ are called upon to kiss the son lest he grow angry in the way. To ally yourself with King Jesus while there is still hope of rescue from sin, death, and hell. And so here's the amazing thing, all of this comfort that the psalm gives to us, all of this strengthening that supplies to us, really in many ways culminates in our willingness to take the gospel message to a hostile world, to a world where many times our well-intentioned love and deeds and words will be thrown back in our faces. But nonetheless, we understand that this is our calling in Christ, and that as we are sent forth, we are not alone, for God is with us, and this God who is with us is ever for us. 
Will you allow me in closing to change my opening illustration? We said, that was a long time ago. What was that again? In the midst of a thunderstorm, taking the comforting weight of the blanket and wrapping yourself up in it to set aside worry and fear. There's something even better, isn't there, than a blanket in the midst of a thunderstorm? What if that child who's who is fearful because of the thunder and the lightning, rather than pulling up the blanket, goes to the door of mom and dad and knocks and says, can I come in? I'm scared. And goes in and and is received by mom and dad and snuggles up there between them in their own bed because their personal presence is that which drives away all fear. At the end of the day, it's not even so much that the 46th Psalm comforts us. It is the God of the 46th Psalm who is with us and who is for us. May we know him to be our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in all our times of trouble. Please join me in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we turn to you today And we have already confessed those moments, those instances when our hearts have grown fearful, when in practical terms we've denied that you are the sovereign God of heaven and earth because we have worried. And we have worried whether or not you are there for us and whether or not you have a purpose for us. We ask, dear God, that you would help us even now to find our comfort and our strength in you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we thank you, O triune God, that you are revealed in such a powerful and full way in the course of this psalm and in this psalm's place within the whole of Scripture. We ask that we would derive great comfort from knowing that you are with us and that you are ever for us. But rather than seeing that comfort ultimately as something selfish and self-serving. May it give us the strength that we require as individuals and as a church body to go to a lost and perishing world with the only news of salvation, the only good news that there is, that in the name of Jesus we must be saved. Father, bless this congregation. Bless it as it serves as light and salt here in Cambridge. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.